Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the second snippet of our conversation with Lisa Dukes, where we talk about what happened with the Silicon Valley Bank and the lessons we can learn as corporate treasurers. Lisa had had almost 20 years of experience in complex corporate organizations, amassing endless experience in innovation within treasury, corporate finance, and derivatives. In the episode of today, expect to learn what are the lessons that corporate treasurers can learn from the SVB events, what should we do when we are in a period of rising interest rates, the importance and role of corporate treasury in such a period, the role of rating agencies after this type of events, and much more. Lisa is quite impressive. The conversation might get a bit technical at some point, but we made sure with Usam to summarize and translate into our own words each section of the episode. Also, if you are very new to Treasury, we highly recommend to first listen to the following episodes so you can have a better understanding of the different terms we tackle in this one. Episode 8 to episode 14 of the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast they are rather short, uh, between 5 and 10 minutes, and provide a high-level overview of what is financial risk management, the different types, where they come from, and how to mitigate them. Last note, before diving into our fascinating conversation with Lisa, we are now on LinkedIn. If you would like to reach out, suggest a topic, ask a question, or simply say hi, we will be more than happy to have you. Just look for Corporate Treasury 101, and that will be us. With all that being said... Please welcome Lisa Dukes. So Lisa, I, I'm I'm quite new to corporate treasury, right? So that that's kind of the idea of the show that uh, that Yom's the corporate treasurer, and I'm just here to to learn more and and then act as the as a listener that, that might have questions. So one of the things I'm taking away from this in general is that, I mean, a bank to a corporate treasurer is a, is a third party, right? So when we talk about counterparty risk to a corporate, the counterparty to uh, a company is, is the bank. So banks failing is like, well, your counterparty risk is, is a uh, risk level may have just changed. Is, is that a fair way to look at it? Like is how, how are corporate treasurers looking at this event and perhaps adjusting or learning from it internally? Uh, well, so I would argue that nothing new. Um, we should always plan and be proactive as risk managers and risk management is not something that you do after the event. Many of the recent failures with SVB or, or even those badge recently as crypto failures have had very similar themes. They've had concentrated customer base combined with arguably poor risk management principles. But regardless, I think everybody should be treating SVB and others as a, a wake-up call. SVB's downfall might not impact um, everybody directly, but we now have time to plan for that next event, which might. So I would look to make use of that time. In terms of counterparty risk and, and how that should be considered as a corporate treasurer, I think many will be surprised to know that bank failures are actually surprisingly common. There's been well over 500 of them in the US since the turn of the millennium. Many of them wow. occurred after the global financial crisis, but even in more benign periods, banks have gone bust. I think between 2011 and 2020, banks have been collapsing at a, a rate of around two a month. 
But I suppose what makes Silicon Valley and Signature Bank special is not only their size, because, I mean, they're the second or third largest bank failures in US history, but also how much time has elapsed since a bank before them failed. So prior to SVB, uh, the last bank to fail was in October 2020, which was the second longest stretch on record. And I think that's why people not necessarily have been becoming complacent, but perhaps uh, need to dust off their counterparty procedures. Um, to ensure any process is fit for purpose, including any approach to counterparty risk, one should always be considering the materiality and adopting a pragmatic approach whilst acknowledging that there'll always be some level of accepted risk tolerated. It's not always going to be at the top of the list. And I suppose any approach would also consider the time um, that needs to be allocated versus the actual risk and incremental benefits. For corporates, um, a typical risk counterparty risk management is highly dependent on their exposure and size, but would typically include uh, a process to select and pre-screen banks, perhaps linked to minimum ratings criteria, a focus on cash concentration, and diversification between counterparties, but also territories, and then other factors like use of secure methods of holding cash like repos and similar. And I think following any event like the SVB event or, or even actually on the back of new information, such as new published stress tests, I would anticipate treasurers to be doing a review to, to look at updating existing data and evaluating whether it is material. And if it is, then looking for additional data points to validate that, uh, maybe through a traffic light review. You can look at additional market pointers such as CDS behavior, so that's credit default swaps, um, share and bond price performance versus what the expected patients would suggest, but also the short-term ratings outlook and the long-term ratings outlook, as well as the bank capital and solvency ratios coming out of the stress test themselves. And then on the back of that review, everyone should be considering whether it's right to be taking action. Uh, if there is a material risk, it might be that um, it was a great exercise to do, but there is no significant risk of loss of cash or, or other assets. But if there is a material risk, they can look to sweep cash to counterparties or territories with less perceived risk, or they should also be reviewing bilateral lines of credit to evaluate whether they should be drawn. Or if there is greater levels of risk, look at holding less cash, whether that's deferring receivables, paying suppliers early um, in exchange for goodwill or financial benefit. Okay. Super clear, Lisa. Thanks a lot. What's, what are the, the actions that's, let's say I'm a corporate treasurer, right? And I'm responsible of my whole treasury department right now. And I'm like, I'm seeing this event. What can I do now? What are the tools that I can leverage if that ship hasn't sailed yet? Uh, what are the instruments I can leverage, the technology perhaps? Um, what, what would you recommend exactly to prevent this from affecting my treasury department too much? But you could argue that that uh, ship has sailed, as, as you said, but... Um, <laughs> We recently saw the biggest single day downward move in two-year US swaps, um, although that now some of that has reversed. But interest rate volatility does remain high, which could be both good and bad. And whilst rates are high, they could still get higher. 
I think for a corporate, they should be reassessing what levels of interest rate risk are acceptable and looking at sensitivities for both operational forecast and interest ranges. I would be looking at refinancing risk. So thinking about interest rates, but also the counterparty aspect, looking at maturities and just a general need for the next, say, three years. What actions can be taken to mitigate the risk now? Are, are there any term extensions, for example? And even if action is only taken on a proportion of the refinancing coming up in the next few years, that will help ease future months if further stresses are felt. I think another big one is to consider working capital levers. Mm. They can really boost liquidity and ease any sensitivities. And it's also key to look at the cost of capital tied up within that, uh, which yeah. actually becomes considerably more or more meaningful when rates are elevated. So when we were in a, a zero interest rate uh, environment, it was clearly next to nothing to, to consider that holding inventory could be now close to 5 to 10% of holding cost. So uh, understanding that is key, but also understanding the terms of any agreements um, so that you know the impact to operational financial covenants if there is an event. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. We, we recently had um, an episode with the leadership of, of TIS and uh, we talked about the strategic role uh, the corporate treasurer had developed throughout the last years and how more and more strategic it will become and influential within the company. Um, and with the shift to the next economic phase, should we consider corporate treasury uh, differently? Like how can corporate treasury departments become more resilient and then influence more how a company is resilient in general, its financial mm -hmm. statement and financial robustness? Uh, I might start sounding like a broken record, but I, I think it's easier to be resilient if you're prepared. And with a step change from the low interest rate environment, perhaps a step change to a more active and proactive risk management approach is becoming increasingly invaluable. It's important not just to accept status quo, which may mean not just accepting existing policies and controls. Uh, for me, it's the right time to be taking a fresh look at the approach uh, and make sure that you're prepared for any eventuality. Run sensitivities, but also sensitivities on the both the risks and the opportunities with additional stresses that you wouldn't ordinarily consider. If one thing has become very evident over the last few years is that previous sensitivities have become a reality more often than they should do or even than is expected. So try to put yourself in a position of strength to be ready for whatever comes next. So can I ask, um, you mentioned earlier as well, of all these bank failures and whatnot and um, but you only mentioned really U.S. Is there some material difference between regulation between the U.S. and the U.K. that's showing more failures there versus the U.K.? I don't know. Actually, I haven't looked into the the val. Uh, I haven't looked into the data, but the the banking industry generally is very very different in the U.S. Uh, than it is in the U.K. Obviously, they're they're monitored differently. So I would anticipate a far lower number in the U.K. But I would be very happy to look at that data. So, uh, and when you say they're different, like, is it more stringent in the UK? Is it like, are banks less greedy in the UK? <laughs> like, what's the, <laughs> what's like, if there was a difference, what would be driving that in your opinion, knowing the markets? 
Um, a good question. And UK people are smarter. But the Yorkshire people. Um, <laughs> I think it tends to be more concentrated or industry specific potentially in the US, which is where SVB is as mm. perhaps um, got into difficulties. Um, obviously, SVB had a, a branch in the UK, but they mm. are. Um, uh, covered, if you like, by the, the Bank of England and the, the, the stress testing here. The stress tests are very jurisdiction and um, size specific, how they undertake stress tests and whether they are a, a globally, a systemically important bank. So I, I don't have to hand the, between the US, UK and the US, but there are definitely differences in the way that they're focused. And also sheer size there. Obviously, the, the markets themselves, there, there is a great need for more banks, I'm sure, in um, catering for different areas and the different regions of the US, which you don't have that same uh, scale of different re regions in the UK. And um, maybe less globally, but uh, I mean, we, we are talking since the beginning of uh, the, the tech aspect into into this, right? And maybe the, the tech development, at least deposits and cash availability in the US. Well, it's the Silicon Valley Bank, right? So mm -hmm. the tech industry there is much more developed. And with the, with the pandemic, we had this booming growth of, of tech companies that, well, is stemming from the US and then, of course, develops to the UK and the rest of Europe. But... I guess that has a, a little role to play in that as well, right? I, I would imagine so, yes. No, I think you made a really good point around the, the fact that in the UK, I had never, growing up there, I never seen like sector-specific banks the same way, I think. Mm -hmm. Indeed, you just had the big banks that, you know, okay, like the fintech market in, in the UK is huge, for example, but they don't have like, there's no fintech bank necessarily. They all bank with, I guess, the normal ones. Business opportunity here. I have to think about it. Potentially <laughs> <laughs> not. If you're business to. But I mean, around the around the concept around regulations as a whole, Lisa. Then, so maybe not just being country specific, but we talked before actually in this uh, in this podcast about rating agencies um, and how they play a critical role in, in these kind of situations. And um, has have. We've talked a lot about what can corporates do better internally. Um, is there anything that corporates can look externally for better guidance from things like rating agencies or are rating agencies acting differently now? Like, has that affected them? So whilst ratings and outlooks are helpful, some of the other measures that I mentioned earlier, so share price, bond price, CDS behavior, they're usually a better barometer of getting a dynamic snapshot to, to manage counterparty strength or, or in fact weakness. Um, ratings tend to be a little backward looking, a little bit too backward looking to cash to catch systemic bank default. That being said, having a detailed review cycle with challenge supported with all of the factors that you've got and allows you to do a more fulsome review. It should be noted that some of the other metrics can be a bit patchy, so it's usually more on a best endeavours basis. But there are various data streams out there that can either be built or, or using outsourced information to support on that. Um, but again, from a, from a corporate lens, um, 
it's important to review it in terms of a longer term objective for risk versus reward. You, you can pay for all of this data, but if the risk isn't that big for your company, then it's, it's probably um, not warranted cost. Makes a lot of sense. Any anything else, Lisa, you would like to to add um, and to tackle when we it comes to the lessons from the SVB downfall? I think we've covered a lot already. Um, Definitely. I think, <laughs> I, think, I think one thing that has surprised me, especially coming out of the several years of low interest rate environments, was a recent survey that showed that less than half of European corporates had over 50% of fixed rate interest cover. We remain in a challenging period. Uh, we've come through the UK crisis and now SVB highlighting the risk associated with lack of risk management. Interest rates are still high. Doesn't mean you should rush out to um, convert everything to fix now, but there are likely ways to proactively plan and using derivatives appropriately to enable a much smoother route and de-risking that route going forward. Yeah, 100%. It's super interesting. It goes back to the to the policy aspect that you mentioned at the beginning of this episode. And usually in corporate treasury and corporate treasury departments, we have a, a treasury policy where the mix of floating versus fixed interest rates, um, loan and debt is, is clearly defined, right? But we might have seen corporates, well, either not having limits at all or completely overlooking them because we're in such a period of, of low interest rates. Mm -hmm. Super clear. Lisa or Gail, maybe one of you to answer this, like, is this oversight, quote unquote, of the risk related to um, long term bonds, for example, when floating versus fixed and whatnot, is that like, is that complacency and, uh, and let, or I don't want to say incompetence, but, but complacency, or is that just that the risk environment has drastically changed suddenly? And and obviously it'll take time to start hedging against that, right? Because I mean, like you you mentioned a lot of times, quite rightly, Lisa, is that it's risk to reward of of mm -hmm. everything you do. So you can hedge everything, but if the risk is not there, then you're going to spend the money to hedge it, right? So the risk profiles also change with the drastic spikes in interest rates. Every time you know the the Fed in the U.S., for example, comes out with a new interest rate, it typically is not what anyone's expecting. <laughs> you know, when people expect it to go up, it goes down, and people expect it to go down, it goes up. Is it just the environment that we're in that it's just hard to do so and companies are trying to balance the risk to, to cost? Or would you just say this was just oversight and complacency? I think there is a balance. So post the, the global financial crisis and the, the, the resulting zero interest rate environment, Many are perhaps numb to having to manage interest rate risk. Maybe some haven't seen high interest rates, so that's another thing to mm. consider. But the com combination of central bank raising and the recent periods of volatility has definitely starkly woke many up to, to needing to manage it properly. I think there is a balance between active and reactive risk management. Maybe to illustrate, maybe you've heard recently that a project couldn't progress because the debt rates were too high. By planning early, the project could have been de-risked and enabled to proceed by securing a rate using interest rate derivatives. Now, there are clearly a balance of other considerations and exposures to consider, including the what-ifs. But that is the difference between active and reactive risk management and balancing having that, that governance structure, the policies and 
the frameworks ready to react to both risks, but we discussed opportunities earlier and having that balance to enable the business rather than react to problems as they occur. I suppose those principles also then apply to enabling M&A strategy or large-scale capital projects. People may have heard of deal contingent structures, and I suppose managing in this way is very similar. You, you need to know the materiality, you need to know the risk, but you need to have the tools and the frameworks ready to adapt. And I think when I when I said plan now for a position of strength, that's what I was getting at ultimately. You don't know what's coming, but you need to be able to re react to the good and bad, um, dependent on the extent of the opportunity or risk that comes your way. 